As we come to the beginning of chapter 4 of Jonah, we see that it begins with the word but. Prior to this, we were looking at the call of Jonah. We saw his disobedience. We saw how he tried to get away from the will of God in chapter 1. But how that the Lord took a dealing with him, preparing a fish to swallow him. And Jonah seemed to have learned great lessons while in the belly of that whale. And chapter 2 illustrates this, because there Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. And the things that he speaks about would cause us to believe that he has learned his lesson. And a man who virtually confessed that he'd been away from the Lord in verse 4 of that chapter 2, when he said, I am cast out of thy sight, could still say, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. There was restoration. There was a remembrance of the Lord. He was able to say in the seventh verse, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. He said in verse 9, I will sacrifice unto thee, With the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. It all looks as though Jonah has learned his lesson. And now he's ready to be used of God again. Chapter 3 illustrates that. There we have the preaching of Jonah. He went to Nineveh the second time he was asked to go. This time he obeys. And he goes to Nineveh. Verse 3 of chapter 3 says, according to the word of the Lord. He began to enter into that city and he cried out and he said, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He's preaching the judgment of God. He's preaching that it's imminent. It's coming. They're going to be overthrown. But the people of Nineveh believed God through Jonah, of course. They proclaimed a fast. And they turned from their sins. And the Bible gives us the words of their king, who sent a decree out to his people that they were not to eat anything or drink anything. They were to be covered with sackcloth. They were to put on the mourning garments and cry mightily unto God. And then he said this in verse 8, Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands, Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not? And in the aftermath of that repentance, which of course God gave them, the Lord Himself turned from the idea of judging them. He turned from that policy to having mercy upon them. That's how it looks. The Lord didn't really turn. That's the language that is used. God saw their works and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them. But God does not repent. God is not a man. God doesn't change his mind. Rather, what happened was they repented. They turned. They came from under God's unchanging wrath against sin to be under his unchanging favor toward righteousness. So they moved from under his judgment to being under his righteousness and under his blessing. 
Wouldn't you think that when a man was sent to preach and his preaching was successful and people turned from their sins by the multitude, in fact the whole city turned from their sins, wouldn't you think he would rejoice in that? Wouldn't you think as a prophet of God he would be so excited to see that? Well, from the preaching of Jonah, sadly we're brought face to face in chapter 4 with the perverseness of Jonah. I have entitled this message, The Angry Prophet. Because that's what we've got here. That's what we see here, right from the first verse of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Jonah was as mad as he could be. Because of the repentance of the Ninevites. And here's a chapter that might surprise the reader when he first reads it. It doesn't seem to be in character at all. The Lord has called a man to preach. He first of all refuses to go. Then he takes a dealing with that man and then he decides that he will go. And preaching God's word, God makes that effectual. His preaching is successful. His ministry is used of God. And you would think that he would be delighted and would actually now be praying again. Only praying in thanksgiving to the Lord. After all, in chapter 2 verse 9 he said, But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. But when you come to chapter 4, he's not giving thanks. He's complaining. And he's angry. And this chapter really is easily divided into two sections. And I would entitle those sections The Rage of Jonah and The the Rebuke of Jonah. Now we look at this portion and we see the rage of Jonah and we try to understand why it should be. The Word of God uses the term displeased. The prophet was in a rage. He was very angry. Now there's a cross-reference that I have here, which is Luke chapter 15 and verse 28. And we have a similar type of situation. It's the story of the prodigal son, the younger son, Decides that he's fed up living on the farm. He doesn't want to work there anymore. He doesn't want to wait till the old man is dead before he gets his inheritance. He'd like to have it early. Because he wants to live it up. He wants to enjoy his life. So he gets the inheritance that belongs to him. He leaves home. He goes to a far country where he wastes his life. He wastes his substance with riotous living. His own brother accused him in verse 30 of Luke 15 of devouring his living with harlots. He's living a wicked life. But what happens? He returns to the father's house and the father receives him gladly. The father treats him with mercy and grace. He kills 
the fatted calf for him. That's an animal that's been kept all this time for this special occasion. And now he kills the fatted calf. And they have a big, how do you do, if you like, because the son is back home. And the father treats him like royalty. He puts a garment upon him, the best robe. Puts a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And he has an older brother who has never left home, who has never wasted his substance with riotous living. And he doesn't like it. And he's angry because the father has had mercy on his little brother. Look, chapter 15, verse 28. Look at it. And he was angry and would not go in. He wouldn't join in with the party. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. He was angry. The elder brother spirit. And that's a sad thing when it's found in a Christian. Jonah was guilty of this kind of thing. We see the rage of Jonah here. And while he's in this rage, he talks to the Lord. Yes, he prays. But he hasn't got the right spirit. He hasn't got the right attitude. He's in a rage when he's praying to the Lord. He's got a wrong spirit in prayer. He wasn't in the right frame of mind to approach God. But it tells us that it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. He was really mad about this. And he prayed unto the Lord. He began to utter his complaint. And I might just stop there and say we can sometimes see ourselves in biblical characters. And I don't know about you, but it's not a good thing when you pray to the Lord when you're angry. It's not good to come before the Lord with a bad spirit. But it's all too possible for us to do that. For whatever reason, to indulge this kind of spirit that Jonah had, we can pray, if you like, improperly. We recall how James talked about this in James chapter 4 and in verse 3. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your own lust. You haven't got the right spirit, you haven't got the right attitude in prayer. You know, it's a sinful thing to be angry with God. Why would we be angry for any reason with the Lord? But Jonah was angry. Jonah was angry. And that rage of his was sinful. But there was a reason for it. The reason for it is expressed by Jonah himself in verse 2. It was caused by the divine deliverance. See, Jonah knew the character of God. And he expresses it in this second verse. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Lord, this is what I knew would happen. When you called me 
to arise and go to Nineveh, I knew what would happen. I'm putting it into our own language, into our own words. Was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. This is why I ran away. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. You know what that tells me? Jonah knew the character of God. Jonah knew as the psalmist knew, for he spoke about it on a number of occasions, that God was a gracious God. That God is a merciful God. That He is slow to anger. That He is of great kindness. And all these things that Jonah is articulating here are still true tonight. I can tell you that God is a gracious God. He's the God of all grace. He's a merciful God. We could speak of grace as getting from God what we don't deserve. We could speak of mercy as not getting from God what we do deserve. Let me repeat that. Grace is receiving from God what we don't deserve. Mercy from God is not receiving what we do deserve. The Lord has mercy upon us. He bestows grace upon us. And I love this. He's slow to anger. This is spoken by an angry man. Jonah wasn't slow to anger. Jonah flared up here in a big way. He was very angry. And yet he's able to say of God, Lord, you're slow to anger. And Lord, thou art of great kindness. And I could keep you for a very long time speaking about the kindness of God. The loving kindness of the Lord. When the psalmist came confessing his sin, that's what he pleaded before God, wasn't it? In Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. What a gracious, merciful, kind God we serve. Jonah knew this. He knew what kind of God he was serving. He knew the character of God and that's why he ran away in the first place. Because he anticipated the repentance of Nineveh. He feared that in fact they would turn from their sins. He feared that they would put away their wickedness. And therefore he knew that the mercy of God would be revealed to that city. And Jonah didn't want that. Can you imagine? His anger was caused by the divine deliverance. Now, Jonah may have had various reasons for being angry at this deliverance. We could perhaps guess at some of those reasons. I think Jonah might well have been afraid that as a prophet of God, he would become a laughing stock in his own country, Israel. Why? 
Well, he'd gone as a prophet to announce divine judgment. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what happened? Nineveh wasn't overthrown. No judgment fell. But rather God had mercy upon them. That would make Jonah look like a fool in his own country. Again, there might be the thought in Jonah's mind that he would be regarded as a false prophet. Because he had gone there to preach judgment. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is what's going to happen. And it didn't happen. So Jonah might be regarded as someone who didn't speak the truth. And so his own reputation was under threat. Maybe there was also this thought that he would have feared for the effect that this deliverance of the Ninevites might have on the Jews themselves. Jonah might well have reasoned, well, if there's no judgment falling on heathen Nineveh, then maybe there's no danger of any punishment being visited upon the Jews. And so he might have reasoned that he couldn't warn them of the danger of judgment If the Lord wouldn't judge heathen Nineveh, why would he judge the Jews? I think as well there could well have been the fear in Jonah's heart of the contempt in which God might be held in Israel as a result of this. That may have been in his mind. But whatever the thinking of Jonah was, whatever was behind this, Doesn't it show us again that God's will and God's purpose and God's plan doesn't always fit with our human reasoning? Jonah was wrong to question the will of the Lord here. He shouldn't have said what he said. He should not have been thinking like this. He's actually taking issue with God for being gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness. In the case of the Assyrians, the Ninevites, he didn't want God to be merciful to them. He wanted them to be judged. Now there's a background for this. If you go back in the history of Israel, the Assyrians, which Nineveh was part of the Assyrian kingdom, they were cruel people. They had been very cruel to Jonah's own people, the Jews. They had taken them into captivity. They had treated them very, very badly. And so Jonah now is thinking, well, they deserve any punishment that's coming their way. I don't want God to have mercy upon them. But he was wrong. He was questioning the will of the Lord. And what Jonah should have said was what the prophet Isaiah said. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and verse 9, you have the words of the Lord himself, where he tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The way we think about things is not how God thinks about things. The conclusions that we reach about matters are not the conclusions that God reaches oftentimes about the same matters. God's will, God's purpose doesn't fit in with our reasoning. 
And you'll know how that is when you face certain situations and you think, well, how could that be for the glory of God? How is this going to bring praise to God? Well, the fact is that we don't know how it will bring praise to God, but it will. It will. And Jonah was wrong here to be in a rage. He was wrong to be questioning the will of the Lord. But at the same time, his testimony and his statement of God's character was a correct one. It was true. Look at it again. He said when he prayed unto the Lord, For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Look at some of the Old Testament references that confirm what Jonah said. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34 and verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him, that's before Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, that's Jehovah, the Lord God, Jehovah God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Again, we could read the words of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 17. Speaking about their fathers and how that they refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But, Nehemiah 9:17, thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. Thou art a God ready to pardon. One of our hymns says, Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? Brings to our minds the word of the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 7, Micah chapter 7 and verse 18, those very words are employed. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. You know, the Bible doesn't speak of God delighting in judgment. It says he delighteth in mercy. He's slow to anger. In speaking to the wicked in Ezekiel 33, he said, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. Why will ye die, O house of Israel? And that's how God speaks to sinners today. God has no pleasure in your death. God has no pleasure in your damnation. It does look as though Jonah would have been happy to see the people of Nineveh destroyed. But he knew that God was gracious and ready to save. And that's the God that we serve today. 
But Jonah's rage, it was caused by the divine deliverance. But I think as well, Jonah's rage caused him to desire death. Strange, isn't it? How strange is this? He prayed to the Lord, and he said to the Lord in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And let me just say this as an aside. It is never, ever, ever right for a human being to say that. We have people today teaching that what they very conveniently cause, call euthanasia. They sanitize what is essentially murder by giving it that fancy name, euthanasia. They think that that's doing people a real favor. There's an organization in Europe called Dignitas. And there are people who can organize their own death by being taken to a clinic somewhere, I believe it's in Switzerland. They can be given a whole cocktail of lethal drugs at a certain given time when they're administered, will bring about their death. The person concerned might be suffering from a, a terminal illness. They could have something like cancer or Lou Gehrig's disease, which is called motor neurone disease in the UK. And because of that, they think, well, my, my life's not worth living, so I'd like to have my life taken away from me. And you've got people, politicians, advocating for this telling you that that's the right thing to do. Beyond that, you have other people, young people, older people, deciding that life is not worth living, so I'm going to end it all. I'm going to take my life. And I can tell you that that is wicked. We don't believe in fratricide, the murder of a sibling. We don't believe in matricide, the killing of a mother, or fratricide, the killing of a father. We don't believe in homicide, but nor do we believe in suicide. It's a sin. It's wrong. It cannot be justified under any circumstances. And people who think that that's making something better, it's not making anything better. For the person concerned, it's not going to make things better for them. Because this life is not all that there is. And bad as this life can be, it's nothing compared to what it could be in the life which is yet to come. There are people who take their own lives by their own hand and all they do is hasten their own demise and take themselves straight to hell. It's not for you or for me to say, it's better for me to die than to live. That's not my decision to make. Nor is it the decision of any other human being. That's God's business. Whether it's better for me to die than to live is up to the Lord. Now ultimately, ultimately we can say with the Apostle Paul, 
that when we die and go to be with Christ, it is far better. Yes, it is. It's far better. But that's not what Jonah's talking about here. Jonah's more or less saying that life is not worth living, and that was not true. But this that had happened got him into such a tizzy that it caused him to desire his own death. And by the way, he's not the only prophet in the Bible to feel like that. You go back to 1 Kings chapter 19 and you read about the prophet Elijah. We always think of Elijah as a mighty, powerful man, don't we? We think of Elijah as a fearless individual. And he was. Until he got the frighteners from Jezebel. And Jezebel more or less told him, I'm going to do to you what you've done to the prophets of Baal. She sent a messenger to Elijah, 1 Kings 19 verse 2, saying, So that the gods do to me and more also, if I make not, <clears throat> if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. What happened to them? Well, they had their throats cut at the brook Kidron. And that's what she threatened to do to God's prophet. So what did Elijah do? Well, when he saw that, it says he arose and went for his life. He ran away as fast as he could. That was a good idea. That was a smart thing to do. And he came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But look at the next verse. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am not better than my father's. Is it not almost comical to think about this? He runs away from a woman who's actually going to fulfill his wish for him if he stays where he is. If Elijah had stayed where he was, his life would have gotten taken away from him. But he runs away into the desert and then he says to the Lord, I want to die. The Lord could have easily said, well, just go back to where you came from and that'll be arranged. Because Jezebel's out to get you. She wants to kill you. Makes me wonder if Elijah really meant what he was saying. Did he really want his life to be taken away? Or was he just speaking because he was so terribly discouraged? But whatever the case, he complained about this later on in the chapter, 1 Kings 19 and verse 10. When he was asked, what doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And look at this. And they seek my life to take it away. Now make up your mind, Elijah. You've asked the Lord to take away your life and now you're complaining about those who want to take away your life. I don't know that Elijah really knew what he was talking about at this stage. But he certainly was like Jonah in that respect. When he talked about dying, talked about his life being no good anymore. It was of no use to the Lord. We, we read this in Jeremiah as well. Jeremiah cursed the day of his birth. 
Now in Jonah's case, he expressed the wish to die three times. Look at chapter 1 verse 12. It could be argued here that maybe he didn't want to die. Maybe that wasn't on his mind. But I find that difficult to accept because the sea was in such a rage that anybody being thrown into the water would have immediately perished. He said to them, chapter 1 verse 12, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. So here's that first time it was because of chastisement. Well, you could say, well, he wasn't necessarily desiring his death. Okay, but look at the second time. It's chapter 4 verse 3. And he's definitely desiring his own death because of carnality. Therefore, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the third time that he desired death was because of circumstances. In chapter 4 and verse 8, When the sun did arise, God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted. He got sunstroke, and he wished in himself to die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. There he's saying the same thing again. But just as it was before, so it was here. Jonah was wrong, and his attitude was a sinful one. He should not have been in this rage. He should not have had this attitude. And I know this not only because the rage of Jonah is spoken about here, but the rebuke of Jonah is given from verse 4 onwards. The Lord begins with a question in verse 4 of chapter 4. Doest thou well to be angry? Jonah, do you think you're justified in being angry? Jonah, do you think it's right for you to be angry? Is it right and is it proper? Doest thou well to be angry? Is there any benefit in your anger? Now clearly it wasn't right. And clearly it wasn't going to do him any good. So we see in verse 5 that Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth. He set up a kind of a little shelter for himself and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. What do you think Jonah was doing there? He was secretly hoping that the Lord would still judge the place. That's why it says he sat there till he might see what would become of the city. I think he's still harboring in his heart these feelings. Surely, surely the Lord is not going to spare these people. Surely the Lord is going to judge this wicked place as I said he would. So he sat down and he's still wishing for that to happen. You know, Jonah's in a terrible state here. He really is. Jonah is in a bad way. Spiritually. Jonah sitting on the ground. And his perverseness, as I've described it, is revealed in that he is still hoping to see the judgment of God carried out. That's the import of these words. 
It's clear, isn't it? He sat down under the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. Now he already knew that the city had repented. He's already complaining to the Lord about that repentance. And he's already complaining to the Lord about his mercy and kindness. But he's still harboring the hope within his heart that the Lord's going to damn the whole lot of them. So you imagine him sitting there and he's looking over this massive city of people. And it was a big city. Because in that city, according to verse 11 of chapter 4, there were more than 120,000 people who could not tell the difference between their right hand and their left hand. That suggests to me those who were too young to discern their right hand from their left, infants, and perhaps also those that were mentally deficient. So if there were 120,000 people like that, how many people were there in total? It was a big place. And there's Jonah looking out over that city. And he's annoyed because they're not being judged. Now just take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 19 and notice a tremendous contrast. Luke chapter 19. And here it speaks of another prophet, a greater prophet than Jonah. The great prophet himself, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And the Bible tells us that he came near to the city of Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19 verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. You know that word for wept that's used in Luke 19.41 is a word that suggests in the Greek a crying out loud or even a wailing. You know, to hear a man crying out loud is a very moving thing, normally. It's a very touching thing. You'll forgive me for saying that the ladies are usually expected to be the criers. But you hear a man crying in that way, wailing. I've been at funerals where that has happened. And it's dreadful. It's a dreadful thing to witness and to hear. Can you imagine the Son of God himself and he's crying out loud, wailing, because of the judgment that lies ahead for that city. What a contrast with Jonah. Jonah wants to see Nineveh destroyed. The Lord Jesus, I can say reverently, didn't want to see the judgment upon Jerusalem. Because he made that clear, did he not? In the closing words of Matthew 23, read it carefully. And I know that there are some, especially in the Reformed community, some of them who have tried to perform all kinds of verbal gymnastics with this. But I take it as it is. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, 
even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. I would, and ye would not. That's what Jesus said. And I can tell you tonight, if you're watching on this broadcast, or anyone who's listening to my voice on this message, this is what the Lord would say to you. He does not desire your death. He does not desire your damnation. The Lord would rather that you would turn from your sins and live. And the overtures that He makes to you in the Gospel are sincere. And they're well meant. And the Lord wants you to know that when He says, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, He means it. But there's Jonah sitting on the ground, wishing for judgment. I want you to see as well here, not only Jonah sitting on the ground, but the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is here. There are four things that God appointed or prepared in this book of Jonah. In chapter 1 verse 17, the Lord had prepared a great fish. In chapter 4 verse 6, the Lord prepared a gourd, kind of a big plant that would grow up. A bush of some kind, a gourd. And then in verse 7, he prepared a worm. And in verse 8, he prepared a vehement east wind. Showing how God is in control of all aspects of creation. Plant life, the gourd. Animal life, the worm, just as we could say of the fish. And even the weather. Because he sent a great storm into the sea in chapter 1. And here he sent and prepared a vehement east wind. See, the Lord's in control of the elements. He has control over all aspects of creation. He's sovereign. He rules. He reigns in earth as well as in heaven. And there's encouragement for me here and for the weakest believer in that God could even use a worm to do His service. The Lord could use a worm. And He did. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. But God prepared a worm. Just one. When the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered, that little creature went to work and destroyed that shade over Jonah's head. The plant died. You know what the Bible says in the Old Testament? In Isaiah chapter 41 and verses 14 and 15. Fear not thou worm, Jacob. Fear not thou worm, Jacob. And ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small and shalt make the hills a chaff. He refers to Jacob, referring to his people as thou worm Jacob. You're insignificant. You're like a creature that people could crush under their foot. But I can use you. I can use you as an instrument. I can use even a worm or a worm-like Christian. We recall the words of Paul 
in this regard. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 26. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. It was Selina, the Countess of Huntingdon, who supported George Whitfield in his ministry financially and in prayer. She was a noble woman. She was actually related to royalty. And she said, I'm ever so glad the Bible didn't say not any noble are called, but not many. But I'm one of them. But who has God called? But God hath called, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God could use a worm. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. God could use a worm. And base things of the world and things which are despised aren't worms despised. He says, hath God chosen in the things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. I'm just a worm, but God can use me. That's the attitude that the Christian should take. There's encouragement for us here in the sovereignty of God. But also I want you to note before we finish the significance of the gourd. What was this gourd? Well, it was a plant that God made to grow to shelter Jonah from the heat. But it was a type. It was a picture that God used to rebuke his servant. Basically, the gourd was a mercy given and then removed. And you know, sometimes God can remove from us even our necessary comforts if he feels it's better for us spiritually. And we ought not to complain when God removes our necessary comforts because they came from his hand in the first place. We didn't earn those things. Always remember what Job said. And you'll remember this every time a little baby is born. Naked came I into the world. I remember watching both of our children being born. And I do remember that. They came into the world with nothing on them. But their birthday suit... And when a person dies, you know what happens? They wash the corpse. They prepare the corpse for burial. Naked came I into the world. Naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We don't bring anything with us into the world and we're not taking anything out with us either. Oh, the folly of people. They spend their hard-earned money on things like lottery tickets. I see people lining up, and so do you, spending money that they can't afford for these scratch cards and such like because they think they're going to get lucky and they're going to hit the jackpot. And even if they did, some of it will burn a hole in their pockets and make their lives a misery. We shouldn't complain when necessary comforts are taken from us because they came from the Lord's hand in the first place. Jonah wasn't like Job, however, because he was angry. You will read here, because the gourd died. Notice that in chapter 4, 
He's angry again. That's why we call this the angry prophet. Because in, in verse 6 we read Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But then in verse 9 the Bible tells us after Jonah fainted and wished to die God said to Jonah doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said I do well to be angry even unto death. He's an angry man. And the Lord's given Jonah anger management here. The Lord had to teach him a lesson from the gourd. Job is angry because of the removal of something that he didn't work for in the first instance. And there's a play on words here that we don't see in the English, but we'd have to see from the original. In verse 10, the Lord said, Thou hast had pity on the gourd. Now, if you look at your margin in your authorized version, you'll see that beside the word pity, there's a number, and it says in the margin, or spared. Thou hast spared the gourd. You've had pity on the gourd. It's the same word then in verse 11, where the Lord said, Should not I spare Nineveh? The word is interchangeable with pity. Should I not pity Nineveh? You're having pity on a plant. Should I not have pity on people? The Lord is teaching Jonah through a visible parable. Jonah, just the way you're looking on this gourd, that's how I'm looking on the city of Nineveh. You never labored. You never made the gourd to grow. But I created it. I made it. And I gave it to you. You did not labor or make the gourd, but I created and I made the people of Nineveh. The gourd came up on a night and it was destroyed in a night, according to the scripture here. But the Ninevites were doomed to perish eternally if God did not spare them. The Lord is teaching Jonah about his own love for men in contrast to what was in Jonah's own heart. Jonah, you think you're doing well to be angry for this gourd? You've had pity on this gourd, for the which thou hast not laboured, neither madest it grow. It came up in a night and perished in a night. Should not I spare Nineveh? Should I not have pity on Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Should I not be allowed to spare these people from eternal wrath? Just as we look at this, it does seem to me from verse 11 that God has a special interest in children. And even, you might argue, the mentally deficient. Because there are people who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. People often wonder about this. Well, I happen to believe that when one can tell his right hand from his left hand, he's reached an age of understanding that is such that he can understand the gospel. And young children can be saved. And my wife and I are proof of that, and others are proof of that, who we have known, who were converted in childhood. But there are children who never get beyond 
early infancy. And I happen to believe that those are sheltered under the blood of Christ if they die before they reach that age that we might consider to be an age of accountability. For some people that's a matter of controversy. I don't see why it should be controversial at all. Spurgeon has a very good sermon on that, by the way. Think of all the little ones. They could never tell their right hand from their left. They're not capable of, in that sense, receiving the gospel. But they are capable of being regenerated by the Spirit of God. And they are capable of having the blood of Christ made over to them. Justifying them. Same is true of those who are mentally deficient. I just refuse to believe that people who are of such a mental age that they're not even old enough to understand the basic things that those people, God will just damn them because they haven't come to Christ. I I refuse to believe that. I believe that all such are covered by the blood of Christ. Should I not be able to spare Nineveh, a city wherein there are a hundred and 20,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. You will notice here there's no answer from Jonah that's recorded. This is how the book ends. Jonah doesn't answer. And I would extrapolate from that that the rebuke was taken to heart because Jonah himself is the author of this book. Jonah wrote this. I really believe that the Lord used it to speak to the heart of his servant. May the Lord make us to be willing and obedient servants. May we be ready to do what he says and to go where he sends without reservation, without complaint, without contradiction. May we do the will of God and leave the issues with him. May God bless his word to all of our hearts. Amen.